Gatsby took an arm of each of us and moved forward into the restaurant, whereupon Mr. Volsham swallowed a new sentence he was starting and lapsed into a somnambulatory abstraction. Highballs, asked the head waiter. This is a nice restaurant here, said Mr. Wolfsham, looking at the Presbyterian nymphs on the ceiling. But I like across the street better. Yes, highballs, agreed Gatsby, and then to Mr. Wolfsham. It's too hot over there. Hot and small. Yes, said Mr. Wolfsham, but full of memories. What place is that? I asked. The old Metropole. The old Metropole, brooded Mr. Wolfsham gloomily. Filled with faces dead and gone, filled with friends gone now forever, I can't forget so long as I live the night they shot Rosie Rosenthal there, it was six of us at the table, and Rosie had eaten drunk a lot all evening, when it was almost morning the waiter came up to him with a funny look and says somebody wants to speak to him outside. All right, says Rosie, and begins to get up, and I pulled him down in his chair. Let the bastards come in here if they want you, Rosie, but don't you, so help me, move outside this room. It was four o'clock in the morning then, and if we'd have raised the blinds we'd have seen daylight. Did he go? I asked innocently. Sure you went. Mr. Wolfsham's nose flashed at me indignantly. He turned around in the door and says, Don't let that waiter take away my coffee. Then he went out on the sidewalk, and they shot him three times in his full belly and drove away. Four of them were electrocuted, I said, remembering. Five with Becker. His nostrils turned to me in an interested way. I understand you're looking for a business connection. The juxtaposition of these two remarks was startling. Gatsby answered for me. Oh no, he exclaimed. This isn't the man. No. Mr. Wolfsham seemed disappointed. This is just a friend I told you we'd talk about that some other time. I beg your pardon, said Mr. Wolfsham. I had a wrong man. A succulent hash arrived, and Mr. Wolfsham, forgetting the more sentimental atmosphere of the old metropole, began to eat with ferocious delicacy. His eyes, meanwhile, roved very slowly all around the room. He completed the arc by turning to inspect the people directly behind. I think that, except for my presence, he would have taken one short glance beneath our own table. Look here, old sport, said Gatsby, leaning toward me. I'm afraid I made you a little angry this morning in the car. There was the smile again, but this time I held out against it. I don't like mysteries, I answered, and I don't understand why you won't come out frankly and tell me what you want. Why has it all got to come through Miss Baker? Oh, it's nothing underhand, he assured me. Miss Baker's a great sportswoman, you know, and she'd never do anything that wasn't all right. Suddenly he looked at his watch, jumped up, and hurried from the room, leaving me with Mr. Wolfsham at the table. He has to telephone, said Mr. Wolfsham, following him with his eyes. Fine fellow, isn't he, handsome to look at and a perfect gentleman? Yes. He's an Oxford man. Oh, he went to Oxford College in England, you know Oxford College. I've heard of it. It's one of the most famous colleges in the world. Have you known Gatsby for a long time? I inquired. Several years, he answered in a gratified way. I made the pleasure of his acquaintance just after the war. But I knew I had discovered a man of fine breeding after I talked with him an hour.
I said to myself. This the kind of man you'd like to take home and introduce to your mother and sister. He paused. I see you're looking at my cuff buttons. I hadn't been looking at them, but I did now. They were composed of oddly familiar pieces of ivory. Finest specimens of human molars, he informed me. Well, I inspected them. That's a very interesting idea. Yeah. He flipped his sleeves up under his coat. Yeah, Gatsby's very careful about women. He would never so much as look at a friend's wife. When the subject of this instinctive trust returned to the table and sat down, Mr. Wolfsham drank his coffee with a jerk and got to his feet. I've enjoyed my lunch, he said, and I'm gonna run off from you two young men before I outstay my welcome. Don't hurry, Mayor, said Gatsby without enthusiasm. Mr. Wolfsham raised his hand in a sort of benediction. You're very polite, but I belong to another generation, he announced solemnly. You sit here and discuss your sports and your young ladies and your... He supplied an imaginary noun with another wave of his hand. As for me, I am fifty years old, and I won't impose myself on you any longer. As he shook hands and turned away his tragic nose was trembling. I wondered if I had said anything to offend him. He becomes very sentimental sometimes, explained Gatsby. This is one of his sentimental days. He's quite a character around New York. A denizen of Broadway. Who is he, anyhow, an actor? No. A dentist? Mayor Wolfsham, no, he's a gambler. Gatsby hesitated, then added, coolly, he's the man who fixed the World Series back in 1919. Fixed the World Series, I repeated. The idea staggered me, I remembered, of course, that the World Series had been fixed in 1919, but if I had thought of it at all, I would have thought of it as a thing that merely happened, the end of some inevitable chain. It never occurred to me that one man could start to play with the faith of fifty million people. With the single-mindedness of a burglar blowing a safe. How did he happen to do that? I asked after a minute. He just saw the opportunity. Why isn't he in jail? They can't get him, old sport, he's a smart man. I insisted on paying the check. As the waiter brought my change, I caught sight of Tom Buchanan across the crowded room. Come along with me for a minute, I said. I've got to say hello to someone. When he saw us, Tom jumped up and took half a dozen steps in our direction. Where have you been, he demanded eagerly. Daisy's furious because you haven't called up. This is Mr. Gatsby, Mr. Buchanan. They shook hands briefly, and a strained, unfamiliar look of embarrassment came over Gatsby's face. How have you been, anyhow? demanded Tom of me. How do you happen to come up this far to eat? I've been having lunch with Mr. Gatsby. I turned toward Mr. Gatsby, but he was no longer there. One October day in 1917. Said Jordan Baker that afternoon, sitting up very straight on a straight chair in the tea garden at the Plaza Hotel. I was walking along from one place to another, half on the sidewalks and half on the lawns. I was happier on the lawns because I had on shoes from England with rubber knobs on the soles that bit into the soft ground. I had on a new plaid skirt, also that blew a little in the wind, 
And whenever this happened the red, white, and blue banners in front of all the houses stretched out stiff and said tut 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 in a disapproving way. The largest of the banners and the largest of the lawns belonged to Daisy Fay's house. She was just eighteen, two years older than me, and by far the most popular of all the young girls in Louisville. She dressed in white and had a little white roadster, and all day long the telephone rang in her house, and excited young officers from Camp Taylor demanded the privilege of monopolizing her that night. Anyways for an hour. When I came opposite her house that morning her white roadster was beside the curb, and she was sitting in it with a lieutenant I had never seen before. They were so engrossed in each other that she didn't see me until I was five feet away. Hello, Jordan, she called unexpectedly. Please come here. I was flattered that she wanted to speak to me because of all the older girls I admired her most. She asked me if I was going to the Red Cross to make bandages. I was. Well then, would I tell them that she couldn't come that day? The officer looked at Daisy while she was speaking, in a way that every young girl wants to be looked at sometime, and because it seemed romantic to me, I have remembered the incident ever since. His name was Jay Gatsby, and I didn't lay eyes on him again for over four years. Even after I'd met him on Long Island, I didn't realize it was the same man. That was 1917. By the next year I had a few bow myself, and I began to play in tournaments, so I didn't see Daisy very often. She went with a slightly older crowd. When she went with anyone at all. Wild rumors were circulating about her. How her mother had found her packing her bag one winter night to go to New York, and say goodbye to a soldier who was going overseas. She was effectually prevented, but she wasn't on speaking terms with her family for several weeks. After that she didn't play around with the soldiers anymore, but only with a few flat-footed, short-sighted young men in town who couldn't get into the army at all. By the next autumn she was gay again, gay as ever. She had a debut after the armistice, and in February she was presumably engaged to a man from New Orleans. In June she married Tom Buchanan of Chicago, with more pomp and circumstance than Louisville ever knew before. He came down with a hundred people in four private cars and hired a whole floor of the Mulbach Hotel, and the day before the wedding he gave her a string of pearls valued at $350,000. I was a bridesmaid. I came into her room half an hour before the bridal dinner and found her lying on her bed as lovely as the June night in her flowered dress and as drunk as a monkey. She had a bottle of sodern in one hand and a letter in the other. Gratulate me she muttered. Never had a drink before, but oh how I do enjoy. What's the matter, Daisy? I was scared, I can tell you. I'd never seen a girl like that before. Here, dearies. She groped around in a waste basket she had with her on the bed and pulled out the string of pearls. Take them downstairs and give them back to whoever they belong to. Tell them all Daisy's changed her mind. Say, Daisy's changed her mind. She began to cry. She cried and cried. I rushed out and found her mother's maid, and we locked the door and got her into a cold bath. She wouldn't let go of the letter. She took it into the tub with her and squeezed it up in a wet ball, and only let me leave it in the soap dish when she saw that it was coming to pieces like snow. But she didn't say another word. We gave her spirits of ammonia and put ice on her forehead and hooked her back into her dress 
and half an hour later, when we walked out of the room, the pearls were around her neck and the incident was over. Next day, at five o'clock she married Tom Buchanan without so much as a shiver, and started off on a three-months trip to the South Seas. I saw them in Santa Barbara when they came back, and I thought I'd never seen a girl so mad about her husband. If he left the room for a minute she'd look around uneasily and say, Where's Tom gone? and wear the most abstracted expression until she saw him coming in the door. She used to sit on the sand with his head in her lap by the hour, rubbing her fingers over his eyes and looking at him with unfathomable delight. It was touching to see them together. It made you laugh in a hushed, fascinated way. That was in August. A week after I left Santa Barbara, Tom ran into a wagon on the Ventura Road one night and ripped a front wheel off his car. The girl who was with him got into the papers too because her arm was broken. She was one of the chambermaids in the Santa Barbara Hotel. The next April, Daisy had her little girl, and they went to France for a year. I saw them one spring in Cannes and later in Deauville, and then they came back to Chicago to settle down. Daisy was popular in Chicago, as you know. They moved with a fast crowd, all of them young and rich and wild, but she came out with an absolutely perfect reputation. Perhaps because she doesn't drink. It's a great advantage not to drink among hard-drinking people. You can hold your tongue and, moreover, you can time any little irregularity of your own so that everybody else is so blind that they don't see or care. Perhaps Daisy never went in for a more at all. And yet, there's something in that voice of hers. Well, about six weeks ago, she heard the name Gatsby for the first time in years. It was when I asked you. Do you remember? If you knew Gatsby in West Egg. After you had gone home she came into my room and woke me up and said. What Gatsby? And when I described him, I was half asleep, she said in the strangest voice that it must be the man she used to know. It wasn't until then that I connected this Gatsby with the officer in her white car. When Jordan Baker had finished telling all this we had left the plaza for half an hour and were driving in a Victoria through Central Park. The sun had gone down behind the tall apartments of the movie stars in the West Fifties, and the clear voices of children, already gathered like crickets on the grass, rose through the hot twilight. I'm the Sheikh of Araby. Your love belongs to me. At night, when you're asleep, into your tent I'll creep. It was a strange coincidence, I said. But it wasn't a coincidence at all. Why not? Gatsby bought that house so that Daisy would be just across the bay. Then it had not been merely the stars to which he had aspired on that June night. He came alive to me, delivered suddenly from the womb of his purposeless splendor. He wants to know, continued Jordan, if you'll invite Daisy to your house some afternoon and then let him come over. The modesty of the demand shook me. He had waited five years and bought a mansion where he dispensed starlight to casual moths, so that he could come over some afternoon to a stranger's garden. Did I have to know all this before he could ask such a little thing? He's afraid. He's waited so long. He thought you might be offended. You see, he's regular tough underneath it all. Something worried me. Why didn't he ask you to arrange a meeting? He wants her to see his house, she explained. And your house is right next door. Oh, I think he half expected her to wander into one of his parties some night, went on Jordan, but she never did. 
Then he began asking people casually if they knew her, and I was the first one he found. It was that night he sent for me at his dance, and you should have heard the elaborate way he worked up to it. Of course, I immediately suggested a luncheon in New York. And I thought he'd go mad. I don't want to do anything out of the way, he kept saying. I want to see her right next door. When I said you were a particular friend of Tom's, he started to abandon the whole idea. He doesn't know very much about Tom, though he says he's read a Chicago paper for years just on the chance of catching a glimpse of Daisy's name. It was dark now, and as we dipped under a little bridge I put my arm around Jordan's golden shoulder and drew her toward me and asked her to dinner. Suddenly, I wasn't thinking of Daisy and Gatsby anymore, but of this clean, hard, limited person who dealt in universal skepticism and who leaned back jauntily just within the circle of my arm. A phrase began to beat in my ears with a sort of heady excitement. There are only the pursued, the pursuing, the busy, and the tired. And Daisy ought to have something in her life, murmured Jordan to me. Does she want to see Gatsby? She's not to know about it, Gatsby doesn't want her to know, you're just supposed to invite her to tea. We passed a barrier of dark trees, and then the facade of 59th Street, a block of delicate pale light, beamed down into the park. Unlike Gatsby and Tom Buchanan, I had no girl whose disembodied face floated along the dark cornices and blinding signs, and so I drew up the girl beside me, tightening my arms. Her wan, scornful mouth smile, and so I drew her up again closer, this time to my face. V. When I came home to West Egg that night, I was afraid for a moment that my house was on fire. Two o'clock, and the whole corner of the peninsula was blazing with light, which fell unreal on the shrubbery and made thin elongating glints upon the roadside wires. Turning a corner, I saw that it was Gatsby's house, lit from tower to cellar. At first I thought it was another party, a wild root that had resolved itself into hide-and-go-seek or sardines-in-the-box, with all the house thrown open to the game. But there wasn't a sound. Only wind in the trees, which blew the wires and made the lights go off and on again, as if the house had winked into the darkness. As my taxi groaned away, I saw Gatsby walking toward me across his lawn. Your place looks like the World's Fair, I said. Does it? He turned his eyes toward it absently. I've been glancing into some of the rooms, let's go to Kenai Island, old sport in my car. It's too late. Well, suppose we take a plunge in the swimming pool. I haven't made use of it all summer. I've gotta go to bed. All right. He waited, looking at me with suppressed eagerness. I talked with Miss Baker, I said after a moment. I'm going to call up Daisy tomorrow and invite her over here to tea. Oh, that's all right, he said carelessly. I don't want to put you to any trouble. What day would suit you? What day would suit you, he corrected me quickly. I don't want to put you to any trouble, you see. How about the day after tomorrow? He considered for a moment. Then, with reluctance, I want to get the grass cut, he said. We both looked out at the grass. There was a sharp line where my ragged lawn ended and the darker, well-kept expanse of his began. I suspected that he meant my grass. There's another little thing, he said uncertainly, and hesitated. Would you rather put it off for a few days? I asked. Oh, it isn't about that. At least, 
he fumbled with a series of beginnings. Why, I thought. Why, look here, old sport, you don't make much money, do you? Not very much. This seemed to reassure him, and he continued more confidently. I thought you didn't if you'll pardon my, you see, I carry on a little business on the side, a sort of sideline, you understand, and I thought that if you don't make very much, you're selling bonds, aren't you? Old sport? Trying to. Well, this would interest you, it wouldn't take up much of your time, and you might pick up a nice bit of money, it happens to be a rather confidential sort of thing. I realize now that under different circumstances, that conversation might have been one of the crises of my life. But, because the offer was obviously and tactlessly for a service to be rendered, I had no choice except to cut him off there. I've got my hands full, I said. I'm much obliged, but I couldn't take on any more work. You wouldn't have to do any business with Wolfsham. Evidently, he thought that I was shying away from the connection mentioned at lunch, but I assured him he was wrong. He waited a moment longer, hoping I'd begin a conversation, but I was too absorbed to be responsive, so he went unwillingly home. The evening had made me lightheaded and happy. I think I walked into a deep sleep as I entered my front door. So I don't know whether or not Gatsby went to Kenai Island, or for how many hours he glanced into rooms while his house blazed gaudily on. I called up Daisy from the office next morning, and invited her to come to tea. Go bring Tom, I warned her. What? Go bring Tom. Who is Tom? she asked innocently. The day agreed upon was pouring rain. At eleven o'clock a man in a raincoat, dragging a lawnmower, tapped at my front door and said that Mr. Gatsby had sent him over to cut my grass. This reminded me that I had forgotten to tell my Finn to come back, so I drove into West Egg Village to search for her among soggy whitewashed alleys and to buy some cups and lemons and flowers. The flowers were unnecessary, for at two o'clock a greenhouse arrived from Gatsby's with innumerable receptacles to contain it. An hour later the front door opened nervously and Gatsby, in a white flannel suit, silver shirt, and gold-colored tie, hurried in. He was pale, and there were dark signs of sleeplessness beneath his eyes. Is everything all right? he asked immediately. The grass looks fine, if that's what you mean. What grass? he inquired blankly. Oh, the grass in the yard. He looked out the window at it, but, judging from his expression, I don't believe he saw a thing. Looks very good, he remarked vaguely. One of the papers said they thought the rain would stop about four. I think it was the journal. Have you got everything you need in the shape of? Of tea. I took him into the pantry, where he looked a little reproachfully at the fin. Together we scrutinized the twelve lemon cakes from the delicatessen shop. Will they do? I asked. Of course, of course they're fine, and he added hollowly, old sport. The rain cooled about half past three to a damp mist, through which occasional thin drops swam like dew. Gatsby looked with vacant eyes through a copy of Clay's Economics, starting at the finished tread that shook the kitchen floor, and peering towards the bleared windows from time to time, as if a series of invisible but alarming happenings were taking place outside. Finally he got up and informed me in an uncertain voice, that he was going home. Why's that? Nobody's coming to tea, it's too late. He looked at his watch, as if there was some pressing demand on his time elsewhere. 
I can't wait all day. Don't be silly. It's just two minutes to four. He sat down miserably, as if I had pushed him, and simultaneously there was the sound of a motor turning into my lane. We both jumped up, and a little harrowed myself I went out into the yard. Under the dripping bare lilac trees a large open car was coming up the drive. It stopped. Daisy's face, tipped sideways beneath a three-cornered lavender hat, looked out at me with a bright ecstatic smile. Is this absolutely where you live, my dearest one? The exhilarating ripple of her voice was a wild tonic in the rain. I had to follow the sound of it for a moment, up and down, with my ear alone, before any words came through. A damp streak of hair lay like a dash of blue paint across her cheek, and her hand was wet with glistening drops as I took it to help her from the car. Are you in love with me, she said low in my ear, or why did I have to come alone? That's the secret of Castle Rackrent, tell your chauffeur to go far away and spend an hour. Come back in an hour, Ferdy. Then, in a grave murmur. His name is Ferdy. Does the gasoline affect his nose? I don't think so, she said innocently. Why? We went in. To my overwhelming surprise, the living room was deserted. Well, that's funny, I exclaimed. What's funny? She turned her head as there was a light dignified knocking at the front door. I went out and opened it. Gatsby, pale as death, with his hands plunged like weights in his coat pockets, was standing in a puddle of water glaring tragically into my eyes. With his hands still in his coat pockets he stalked by me into the hall, turned sharply as if he were on a wire, and disappeared into the living room. It wasn't a bit funny. Aware of the loud beating of my own heart, I pulled the door to against the increasing rain. For half a minute there wasn't a sound. Then, from the living room, I heard a sort of choking murmur and part of a laugh, followed by Daisy's voice on a clear artificial note. I certainly am awfully glad to see you again. A pause. It endured horribly. I had nothing to do in the hall, so I went into the room. Gatsby, his hands still in his pockets, was reclining against the mantelpiece in a strained counterfeit of perfect ease, even of boredom. His head leaned back so far that it rested against the face of a defunct mantelpiece clock, and from this position his distraught eyes stared down at Daisy, who was sitting, frightened but graceful, on the edge of a stiff chair. We've met before, muttered Gatsby. His eyes glanced momentarily at me, and his lips parted with an abortive attempt at a laugh. Luckily, the clock took this moment to tilt dangerously at the pressure of his head, whereupon he turned and caught it with trembling fingers and set it back in place. Then he sat down, rigidly, his elbow on the arm of the sofa and his chin in his hand. I'm sorry about the clock, he said. My own face had now assumed a deep tropical burn. I couldn't muster up a single commonplace out of the thousand in my head. It's an old clock, I told them idiotically. I think we all believed for a moment that it had smashed in pieces on the floor. We haven't met for many years, said Daisy, her voice as matter-of-fact as it could ever be. Five years next November. The automatic quality of Gatsby's answer set us all back at least another minute. I had them both on their feet with the desperate suggestion that they help me make tea in the kitchen when the demoniac Finn brought it in on a tray. 
amid the welcome confusion of cups and cakes a certain physical decency established itself. Gatsby got himself into a shadow and, while Daisy and I talked, looked conscientiously from one to the other of us with tense, unhappy eyes. However, as calmness wasn't an end in itself, I made an excuse at the first possible moment and got to my feet. Where are you going? demanded Gatsby in immediate alarm. I'll be back. I've got to speak to you about something before you go. He followed me wildly into the kitchen, closed the door, and whispered. Oh, God, in a miserable way. What's the matter? This is a terrible mistake, he said, shaking his head from side to side. A terrible, terrible mistake. You're just embarrassed, that's all. And luckily, I added. Daisy's embarrassed, too. She's embarrassed, he repeated incredulously. Just as much as you are. Don't talk so loud. You're acting like a little boy, I broke out impatiently. Not only that, but you're rude. Daisy's sitting in there all alone. He raised his hand to stop my words, looked at me with unforgettable reproach, and opening the door cautiously, went back into the other room. I walked out the back way, just as Gatsby had, when he had made his nervous circuit of the house half an hour before, and ran for a huge black knotted tree whose massed leaves made a fabric against the rain. Once more it was pouring, and my irregular lawn, well shaved by Gatsby's gardener, abounded in small muddy swamps and prehistoric marshes. There was nothing to look at from under the tree except Gatsby's enormous house, so I stared at it, like Kant at his church steeple, for half an hour. A brewer had built it early in the period craze a decade before, and there was a story that he'd agreed to pay five years' taxes on all the neighboring cottages if the owners would have their roofs thatched with straw. Perhaps their refusal took the heart out of his plan to found a family. He went into an immediate decline. His children sold his house with the black wreath still on the door. Americans, while willing, even eager, to be serfs, have always been obstinate about being peasantry. After half an hour, the sun shone again, and the grocer's automobile rounded Gatsby's drive with the raw material for his servant's dinner. I felt sure he wouldn't eat a spoonful. A maid began opening the upper windows of his house, appeared momentarily in each, and, leaning from the large central bay, spat meditatively into the garden. It was time I went back. While the rain continued it had seemed like the murmur of their voices, rising and swelling a little now and then with gusts of emotion. But in the new silence I felt that silence had fallen within the house too. I went in after making every possible noise in the kitchen, short of pushing over the stove, but I don't believe they heard a sound. They were sitting at either end of the couch, looking at each other as if some question had been asked, or was in the air, and every vestige of embarrassment was gone. Daisy's face was smeared with tears, and when I came in she jumped up and began wiping at it with her handkerchief before a mirror. But there was a change in Gatsby that was simply confounding. He literally glowed. Without a word or a gesture of exultation, a new well-being radiated from him and filled the little room. Oh, hello, old sport, he said, as if he hadn't seen me for years. I thought for a moment he was going to shake hands. It stopped raining. Has it? When he realized what I was talking about, that there were twinkle bells of sunshine in the room, he smiled like a weatherman, like an ecstatic patron of recurrent light, and repeated the news to Daisy. What do you think of that? It stopped raining. 
I'm glad Jay. Her throat, full of aching, grieving beauty, told only of her unexpected joy. I want you and Daisy to come over to my house, he said. I'd like to show her around. You're sure you want me to come? Absolutely, old spore. Daisy went upstairs to wash her face, too late I thought with humiliation of my towels, while Gatsby and I waited on the lawn. My house looks well, doesn't it, he demanded. See how the whole front of it catches the light. I agreed that it was splendid. Yes. His eyes went over it, every arch door and square tower. It took me just three years to earn the money that bought it. I thought you inherited your money. I did, old sport, he said automatically, but I lost most of it in the big panic. The panic of the war. I think he hardly knew what he was saying, for when I asked him what business he was in he answered. That's my affair, before he realized that it wasn't an appropriate reply. Oh, I've been in several things, he corrected himself. I was in the drug business and then I was in the oil business, but I'm not in either one now. He looked at me with more attention. Do you mean you've been thinking over what I proposed the other night? Before I could answer, Daisy came out of the house and two rows of brass buttons on her dress gleamed in the sunlight. That huge place there, she cried pointing. Do you like it? I love it, but I don't see how you live there all alone. I keep it always full of interesting people, night and day, people who do interesting things, celebrated people. Instead of taking the shortcut along the sound, we went down to the road and entered by the big postern. With enchanting murmurs, Daisy admired this aspect, or that of the feudal silhouette against the sky, admired the gardens, the sparkling odor of jonquils, and the frothy odor of hawthorn and plum blossoms, and the pale gold odor of kiss me at the gate. It was strange to reach the marble steps and find no stir of bright dresses in and out the door, and hear no sound but bird voices in the trees. And inside, as we wandered through Marie Antoinette music rooms and restoration salons, I felt that there were guests concealed behind every couch and table, under orders to be breathlessly silent until we had passed through. As Gatsby closed the door of the Merton College Library, I could have sworn I heard the allied man break into ghostly laughter. We went upstairs, through period bedrooms swathed in rose and lavender silk, and vivid with new flowers, through dressing rooms and pool rooms, and bathrooms with sunken baths. Intruding into one chamber where a disheveled man in pajamas was doing liver exercises on the floor. It was Mr. Clipspringer, the boarder. I had seen him wandering hungrily about the beach that morning. Finally we came to Gatsby's home apartment, a bedroom and a bath, and an Adam's study, where we sat down and drank a glass of some chartreuse he took from a cupboard in the wall. He hadn't once ceased looking at Daisy, and I think he revalued everything in his house according to the measure of response it drew from her well-loved eyes. Sometimes, too, he stared around at his possessions in a dazed way, as though in her actual and astounding presence none of it was any longer real. Once he nearly toppled down a flight of stairs. His bedroom was the simplest room of all, except where the dresser was garnished with a toilet set of pure dull gold. Daisy took the brush with delight and smoothed her hair, whereupon Gatsby sat down and shaded his eyes and began to laugh. It's the funniest thing, old sport, he said hilariously. I can't when I try to. He had passed visibly through two states and was entering upon a third. 
After his embarrassment and his unreasoning joy, he was consumed with wonder at her presence. He had been full of the idea so long, dreamed it right through to the end, waited with his teeth set, so to speak, at an inconceivable pitch of intensity. Now, in the reaction, he was running down like an overwound clock. Recovering himself in a minute, he opened for us two hulking patent cabinets, which held his mass suits and dressing gowns and ties, and his shirts, piled like bricks and stacks a dozen high. I've got a man in England who buys me clothes, he sends over a selection of things at the beginning of each season, spring and fall. He took out a pile of shirts and began throwing them, one by one, before us, shirts of sheer linen and thick silk and fine flannel, which lost their folds as they fell and covered the table in many-colored disarray. While we admired he brought more, and the soft rich, heap mounted higher. Shirts with stripes and scrolls and plaids in coral and apple green and lavender and faint orange, with monograms of Indian blue. Suddenly, with a strange sound, Daisy bent her head into the shirts and began to cry stormily. They're such beautiful shirts, she sobbed, her voice muffled in the thick folds. It makes me sad because I've never seen such, such beautiful shirts before. After the house, we were to see the grounds and the swimming pool and the hydroplane and the midsummer flowers. But outside Gatsby's window, it began to rain again, so we stood in a row looking at the corrugated surface of the sound. If it wasn't for the mist, we could see your home across the bay, said Gatsby. You always have a green light that burns all night at the end of your dock. Daisy put her arm through his abruptly, but he seemed absorbed in what he had just said. Possibly it had occurred to him that the colossal significance of that light had now vanished forever. Compared to the great distance that had separated him from Daisy, it had seemed very near to her, almost touching her. It had seemed as close as a star to the moon. Now it was again a green light on a dock. His count of enchanted objects had diminished by one. I began to walk about the room, examining various indefinite objects in the half-darkness. A large photograph of an elderly man in yachting costume attracted me, hung on the wall over his desk. Who's this? That, that's Mr. Dan Cody, old sport. The name sounded faintly familiar. He's dead now, he used to be my best friend years ago. There was a small picture of Gatsby, also in yachting costume, on the bureau, Gatsby, with his head thrown back defiantly, taken apparently when he was about eighteen. I adore it, exclaimed Daisy. The pompadour. You never told me you had a pompadour. Or a yacht. Look at this, said Gatsby quickly. Here's a lot of clippings. About you. They stood side by side examining it. I was going to ask to see the rubies when the phone rang, and Gatsby took up the receiver. Yes, well, I can't talk now, I can't talk now, old sport, I said a small town. He must know what a small town is, well, he's no use to us if Detroit is his idea of a small town. He rang off. Come here quick, cried Daisy at the window. The rain was still falling, but the darkness had parted in the west and there was a pink and golden billow of foamy clouds above the sea. Look at that, she whispered, and then after a moment, I'd like to just get one of those pink clouds and put you in it and push you around. I tried to go then, but they wouldn't hear of it. Perhaps my presence made them feel more satisfactorily alone. I know what we'll do, said Gatsby. We'll have Clipspringer play the piano.
he went out of the room calling, Ewing, and returned in a few minutes accompanied by an embarrassed, slightly worn young man, with shell-rimmed glasses and scanty blonde hair. He was now decently clothed in a sport shirt, open at the neck, sneakers and duck trousers of a nebulous hue. Did we interrupt your exercise? inquired Daisy politely. I was asleep, cried Mr. Klitspringer, in a spasm of embarrassment. That is, I'd been asleep, then I got a... Klipspringer plays the piano, said Gatsby, cutting him off. Don't you, Ewing old sport? I don't play well, I don't. Hardly play at all, I'm all out of prac. We'll go downstairs, interrupted Gatsby. He flipped a switch. The gray windows disappeared as the house glowed full of light. In the music room, Gatsby turned on a solitary lamp beside the piano. He lit Daisy's cigarette from a trembling match and sat down with her on a couch far across the room, where there was no light save what the gleaming floor bounced in from the hall. When Clipspringer had played the love nest, he turned around on the bench and searched unhappily for Gatsby in the gloom. I'm all out of practice, you see. I told you I couldn't play. I'm all out of prac. Don't talk so much, old sport, commanded Gatsby. Play. In the morning. In the evening. Ain't we got fun? Outside the wind was loud, and there was a faint flow of thunder along the sound. All the lights were going on in West Egg now. The electric trains men carrying were plunging home through the rain from New York. It was the hour of a profound human change, and excitement was generating on the air. One thing sure and nothing surer. The rich get richer, and the poor get. Children. In the meantime. In between time. As I went over to say goodbye, I saw that the expression of bewilderment had come back into Gatsby's face, as though a faint doubt had occurred to him as to the quality of his present happiness. Almost five years. There must have been moments even that afternoon when Daisy tumbled short of his dreams. Not through her own fault but because of the colossal vitality of his illusion. It had gone beyond her, beyond everything. He had thrown himself into it with a creative passion, adding to it all the time, decking it out with every bright feather that drifted his way. No amount of fire or freshness can challenge what a man can store up in his ghostly heart. As I watched him he adjusted himself a little, visibly. His hand took hold of hers, and as she said something low in his ear he turned toward her with a rush of emotion. I think that voice held him most, with its fluctuating feverish warmth, because it couldn't be overdreamed. That voice was a deathless song. They had forgotten me, but Daisy glanced up and held out her hand. Gatsby didn't know me now at all. I looked once more at them and they looked back at me, remotely, possessed by intense life. Then I went out of the room and down the marble steps into the rain, leaving them there together. V.I. About this time, an ambitious young reporter from New York arrived one morning at Gatsby's door and asked him if he had anything to say. Anything to say about what? inquired Gatsby politely. Why? Any statement to give out. It transpired, after a confused five minutes, that the man had heard Gatsby's name around his office in a connection which he either wouldn't reveal or didn't fully understand. This was his day off, and with laudable initiative he had hurried out to see. It was a random shot, and yet the reporter's instinct was right. 
Gatsby's notoriety, spread about by the hundreds who had accepted his hospitality and so become authorities upon his past, had increased all summer until he fell just short of being news. Contemporary legends, such as the Underground Pipeline to Canada, attached themselves to him, and there was one persistent story that he didn't live in a house at all, but in a boat that looked like a house and was moved secretly up and down the Long Island shore. Just why these inventions were a source of satisfaction to James Gatz of North Dakota isn't easy to say. James Gatz. That was really, or at least legally, his name. He had changed it at the age of 17, and at the specific moment that witnessed the beginning of his career. When he saw Dan Cody's yacht drop anchor over the most insidious flat on Lake Superior. It was James Gatz who had been loafing along the beach that afternoon in a torn green jersey and a pair of canvas pants, but it was already Jay Gatsby who borrowed a rowboat, pulled out to the Chulomi, and informed Cody that a wind might catch him and break him up in half an hour. I suppose he'd had the name ready for a long time even then. His parents were shiftless and unsuccessful farm people. His imagination had never really accepted them as his parents at all. The truth was that Jay Gatsby of West Egg, Long Island, sprang from his platonic conception of himself. He was a son of God, a phrase which, if it means anything, means just that, and he must be about his father's business, the service of a vast, vulgar, and meretricious beauty. So he invented just the sort of Jay Gatsby that a 17-year-old boy would be likely to invent, and to this conception he was faithful to the end. For over a year, he had been beating his way along the south shore of Lake Superior as a clan digger and a salmon fisher, or in any other capacity that brought him food and bed. His brown, hardening body lived naturally through the half-fierce, half-lazy work of the bracing days. He knew women early, and since they spoiled him, he became contemptuous of them, of young virgins because they were ignorant, of the others because they were hysterical about things which in his overwhelming self-absorption he took for granted. But his heart was in a constant turbulent riot. The most grotesque and fantastic conceits haunted him in his bed at night. A universe of ineffable gaudiness spun itself out in his brain while the clock ticked on the washstand and the moon soaked with wet light his tangled clothes upon the floor. Each night he added to the pattern of his fancies, until drowsiness closed down upon some vivid scene with an oblivious embrace. For a while these reveries provided an outlet for his imagination. They were a satisfactory hint of the unreality of reality, a promise that the rock of the world was founded securely on a fairy's wing. An instinct toward his future glory had led him, some months before, to the small Lutheran college of St. Olaf's in southern Minnesota. He stayed there two weeks, dismayed at its ferocious indifference to the drums of his destiny, to destiny itself, and despising the janitor's work with which he was to pay his way through. Then he drifted back to Lake Superior, and he was still searching for something to do on the day that Dan Cody's yacht dropped anchor in the shallows alongshore. Cody was fifty years old then, a product of the Nevada silver fields, of the Yukon, of every rush for metal since seventy-five. The transactions in Montana copper that made him many times a millionaire found him physically robust but on the verge of soft-mindedness, and suspecting this, an infinite number of women tried to separate him from his money. The none-too-savory ramifications by which Ella Kay, the newspaper woman, played Madame de Maintenon to his weakness and sent him to sea in a yacht 
were common property of the turgid journalism in 1902. He had been coasting along all too hospitable shores for five years when he turned up as James Gatz's destiny in Little Girl Bay. To young Gatz, resting on his oars and looking up at the railed deck, that yacht represented all the beauty and glamour in the world. I suppose he smiled at Cody. He had probably discovered that people liked him when he smiled. At any rate, Cody asked him a few questions, one of them elicited the brand new name, and found that he was quick and extravagantly ambitious. A few days later, he took him to Duluth and bought him a blue coat, six pairs of white duck trousers, and a yachting cap. And when the Chulomi left for the West Indies and the Barbary Coast, Gatsby left too. He was employed in a vague personal capacity. While he remained with Cody, he was in turn steward, mate, skipper, secretary, and even jailer, for Dan Cody sober knew what lavish doings Dan Cody drunk might soon be about, and he provided for such contingencies by reposing more and more trust in Gatsby. The arrangement lasted five years, during which the boat went three times around the continent. It might have lasted indefinitely, except for the fact that Ella Kay came on board one night in Boston and a week later Dan Cody inhospitably died. I remember the portrait of him up in Gatsby's bedroom, a gray, florid man with a hard, empty face. The pioneer debauchee, who during one phase of American life, brought back to the eastern seaboard the savage violence of the frontier brothel and saloon. It was indirectly due to Cody that Gatsby drank so little. Sometimes in the course of gay parties women used to rub champagne into his hair. For himself, he formed the habit of letting liquor alone. And it was from Cody that he inherited money. A legacy of $25,000. He didn't get it. He never understood the legal device that was used against him, but what remained of the millions went intact to Elikay. He was left with his singularly appropriate education. The vague contour of Jay Gatsby had filled out to the substantiality of a man. He told me all this very much later, but I've put it down here with the idea of exploding those first wild rumors about his antecedents, which weren't even faintly true. Moreover, he told it to me at a time of confusion, when I had reached the point of believing everything and nothing about him. So I take advantage of this short halt, while Gatsby, so to speak, caught his breath, to clear this set of misconceptions away. It was a halt, too, in my association with his affairs. For several weeks I didn't see him or hear his voice on the phone, mostly I was in New York, trotting around with Jordan and trying to ingratiate myself with her senile aunt. But finally I went over to his house one Sunday afternoon. I hadn't been there two minutes when somebody brought Tom Buchanan in for a drink. I was startled, naturally, but the really surprising thing was that it hadn't happened before. They were a party of three on horseback. Tom and a man named Sloan, and a pretty woman in a brown riding habit, who had been there previously. I'm delighted to see you, said Gatsby, standing on his porch. I'm delighted that you dropped in. As though they cared. Sit right down, have a cigarette or a cigar. He walked around the room quickly, ringing bells. I'll have something to drink for you in just a minute. He was profoundly affected by the fact that Tom was there but he would be uneasy anyhow until he had given them something, realizing in a vague way that that was all they came for. Mr. Sloan wanted nothing. A lemonade? No, thanks. A little champagne? 
Nothing at all, thanks. I'm sorry. Did you have a nice ride? Very good roads around here. I suppose the automobiles. Yeah. Moved by an irresistible impulse, Gatsby turned to Tom, who had accepted the introduction as a stranger. I believe we've met somewhere before, Mr. Buchanan. Oh yes, said Tom, gruffly polite, but obviously not remembering. So we did, I remember very well. About two weeks ago. That's right, you were with Nick here. I know your wife, continued Gatsby, almost aggressively. That's so? Tom turned to me. You live near here, Nick? Next door. That's so? Mr. Sloan didn't enter into the conversation, but lounged back haughtily in his chair. The woman said nothing either. Until, unexpectedly, after two highballs, she became cordial. We'll all come over to your next party, Mr. Gatsby, she suggested. What do you say? Certainly. I'd be delighted to have you. Be very nice, said Mr. Sloan, without gratitude. Well, think ought to be starting home. Please don't hurry, Gatsby urged them. He had control of himself now, and he wanted to see more of Tom. Why don't you? Why don't you stay for supper? I wouldn't be surprised if some other people dropped in from New York. You come to supper with me, said the lady enthusiastically. Both of ye. This included me. Mr. Sloan got to his feet. Come along, he said. But to her only. I mean it, she insisted. I'd love to have you, lots of room. Gatsby looked at me questioningly. He wanted to go, and he didn't see that Mr. Sloan had determined he shouldn't. I'm afraid I won't be able to, I said. Will you come, she urged, concentrating on Gatsby. Mr. Sloan murmured something close to her ear. We won't be late if we start now, she insisted aloud. I haven't got a horse, said Gatsby. I used to ride in the army, but I've never bought a horse. I'll have to follow you in my car. Excuse me for just a minute. The rest of us walked out on the porch, where Sloan and the lady began an impassioned conversation aside. My God, I believe the man's coming, said Tom. Doesn't he know she doesn't want him? She says she does want him. She has a big dinner party and he won't know a soul there. He frowned. I wonder where in the devil he met Daisy by God, I may be old-fashioned in my ideas, but women run around too much these days to suit me, they meet all kinds of crazy fish. Suddenly Mr. Sloan and the lady walked down the steps and mounted their horses. Come on, said Mr. Sloan to Tom, we're late, we've got to go. And then to me, tell him we couldn't wait, will you? Tom and I shook hands, the rest of us exchanged a cool nod, and they trotted quickly down the drive, disappearing under the August foliage just as Gatsby, with hat and light overcoat in hand, came out the front door. Tom was evidently perturbed at Daisy's running around alone, for on the following Saturday night he came with her to Gatsby's party. Perhaps his presence gave the evening its peculiar quality of oppressiveness. It stands out in my memory from Gatsby's other parties that summer. There were the same people, or at least the same sort of people, the same profusion of champagne, the same mini-colored, mini-key commotion, but I felt an unpleasantness in the air, a pervading harshness that hadn't been there before. 
or perhaps I had merely grown used to it, grown to accept West Egg as a world complete in itself, with its own standards and its own great figures, second to nothing because it had no consciousness of being so. And now I was looking at it again, through Daisy's eyes. It is invariably saddening to look through new eyes at things upon which you have expended your own powers of adjustment. They arrived at twilight, and as we strolled out among the sparkling hundreds, Daisy's voice was playing murmurous tricks in her throat. These things excite me so, she whispered. If you want to kiss me any time during the evening, Nick, just let me know and I'll be glad to arrange it for you. Just mention my name. Or present a green card. I'm giving out green. Look around, suggested Gatsby. I'm looking around. I'm having a marvelous. You must see the faces of many people you've heard about. Tom's arrogant eyes roamed the crowd. We don't go around very much, he said. In fact, I was just thinking I don't know a soul here. Perhaps you know that lady. Gatsby indicated a gorgeous, scarcely human orchid of a woman who sat in state under a white plum tree. Tom and Daisy stared, with that peculiarly unreal feeling that accompanies the recognition of a hitherto ghostly celebrity of the movies. She's lovely, said Daisy. The man bending over her is her director. He took them ceremoniously from group to group. Mrs. Buchanan and Mr. Buchanan. After an instant's hesitation, he added, The polo player. Oh no, objected Tom quickly, not me. But evidently the sound of it pleased Gatsby for Tom remained the polo player for the rest of the evening. I've never met so many celebrities, Daisy exclaimed. I like that man, what was his name, with a sort of blue nose. Gatsby identified him, adding that he was a small producer. Well, I liked him anyhow. I'd a little rather not be the polo player, said Tom pleasantly. I'd rather look at all these famous people in. In oblivion. Daisy and Gatsby danced. I remember being surprised by his graceful conservative foxtrot. I had never seen him dance before. Then they sauntered over to my house and sat on the steps for half an hour, while at her request I remained watchfully in the garden. In case there's a fire or a flood, she explained, or any act of God. Tom appeared from his oblivion as we were sitting down to supper together. You mind if I eat with some people over here, he said. A fellow's getting off some funny stuff. Go ahead, answered Daisy genially, and if you want to take down any addresses, here's my little gold pencil. She looked around after a moment and told me the girl was common but pretty, and I knew that except for the half hour she'd been alone with Gatsby, she wasn't having a good time. We were at a particularly tipsy table. That was my fault. Gatsby had been called to the phone, and I'd enjoyed these same people only two weeks before. But what had amused me then turned septic on the air now. How do you feel, Miss Bedecker? The girl addressed was trying, unsuccessfully, to slump against my shoulder. At this inquiry, she sat up and opened her eyes. Why? A massive and lethargic woman, who had been urging Daisy to play golf with her at the local club tomorrow, spoke in Miss Bedecker's defense. Oh, she's all right now. When she's had five or six cocktails, she always starts screaming like that. I tell her she ought to leave it alone. I do leave it alone, affirmed the accused hollowly. 
We heard you yelling, so I said to Doc Sivet here. There's somebody that needs your help, Bot. She's much obliged, I'm sure, said another friend, without gratitude, but you got her dress all wet when you stuck her head in the pool. Anything I hate is to get my head stuck in a pool, mumbled Miss Biedeker. They almost drowned me once over in New Jersey. Then you ought to leave it alone, countered Dr. Sivet. Speak for yourself, cried Miss Biedeker violently. Your hand shakes. I wouldn't let you operate on me. It was like that. Almost the last thing I remember was standing with Daisy and watching the moving picture director and his star. They were still under the white plum tree and their faces were touching except for a pale, thin ray of moonlight between. It occurred to me that he had been very slowly bending toward her all evening to attain this proximity, and even while I watched I saw him stoop one ultimate degree and kiss at her cheek. I like her, said Daisy. I think she's lovely. But the rest offended her. And inarguably because it wasn't a gesture, but an emotion. She was appalled by West Egg, this unprecedented place that Broadway had begotten upon a Long Island fishing village. Appalled by its raw vigor that chafed under the old euphemisms, and by the too obtrusive fate that herded its inhabitants along a shortcut from nothing to nothing. She saw something awful in the very simplicity she failed to understand. I sat on the front steps with them while they waited for their car. It was dark here in front. Only the bright door sent ten square feet of light volleying out into the soft black morning. Sometimes a shadow moved against a dressing room blind above, gave way to another shadow, an indefinite procession of shadows, who rouged and powdered in an invisible glass. Who is this Gatsby, anyhow? demanded Tom Subway. Some big bootlegger. Where'd you hear that? I inquired. I didn't hear it, I imagined it. A lot of these newly rich people are just big bootleggers, you know. Not Gatsby, I said shortly. He was silent for a moment. The pebbles of the drive crunched under his feet. Well, he certainly must have strained himself to get this menagerie together. A breeze stirred the gray haze of daisies for collar. At least they are more interesting than the people we know, she said with an effort. You didn't look so interested. Well, I was. Tom laughed and turned to me. Did you notice Daisy's face when that girl asked her to put her under a cold shower? Daisy began to sing with the music in a husky, rhythmic whisper, bringing out a meaning in each word that it had never had before and would never have again. When the melody rose her voice broke up sweetly, following it, in a way contralto voices have, and each change tipped out a little of her warm human magic upon the air. Lots of people come who haven't been invited, she said subtly. That girl hadn't been invited, they simply forced their way in, and he's too polite to object. I'd like to know who he is and what he does, insisted Tom. And I think I'll make a point of finding out. I can tell you right now, she answered. He owned some drugstores, a lot of drugstores, he built them up himself. The dilatory limousine came rolling up the drive. Good night, Nick, said Daisy. Her glance left me and sought the lighted top of the steps, where three o'clock in the morning, a neat, sad little waltz of that year, was drifting out the open door. After all, in the very casualness of Gatsby's party, there were romantic possibilities, totally absent from her world. What was it up there in the song that seemed to be calling her back inside? What would happen now in the dim, incalculable hours? 
perhaps some unbelievable guest would arrive, a person infinitely rare and to be marveled at, some authentically radiant young girl who with one fresh glance at Gatsby, one moment of magical encounter, would blot out those five years of unwavering devotion. I stayed late that night. Gatsby asked me to wait until he was free, and I lingered in the garden until the inevitable swimming party had run up, chilled and exalted from the black beach, until the lights were extinguished in the guest rooms overhead. When he came down the steps at last the tan skin was drawn unusually tight on his face, and his eyes were bright and tired. She didn't like it, he said immediately. Of course she did. She didn't like it, he insisted. She didn't have a good time. He was silent, and I guessed at his unutterable depression. I feel far away from her, he said. It's hard to make her understand. You mean about the dance? The dance? He dismissed all the dances he had given with a snap of his fingers. Old sport, the dance is unimportant. You wanted nothing less of Daisy than that she should go to Tom and say. I never loved you. After she had obliterated four years with that sentence, they could decide upon the more practical measures to be taken. One of them was that, after she was free, they were to go back to Louisville and be married from her house. Just as if it were five years ago. And she doesn't understand, he said. She used to be able to understand. We'd sit for hours. He broke off and began to walk up and down a desolate path of fruit rinds and discarded favors and crushed flowers. I wouldn't ask too much of her, I ventured. You can't repeat the past. Can't repeat the past, he cried incredulously. Why, of course you can. He looked around him wildly, as if the past were lurking here in the shadow of his house, just out of reach of his hand. I'm gonna fix everything just the way it was before, he said, nodding determinedly. She'll see. He talked a lot about the past, and I gathered that he wanted to recover something, some idea of himself perhaps, that had gone into loving Daisy. His life had been confused and disordered since then, but if he could once return to a certain starting place and go over it all slowly, he could find out what that thing was. One autumn night, five years before, they had been walking down the street when the leaves were falling, and they came to a place where there were no trees and the sidewalk was white with moonlight. They stopped here and turned toward each other. Now, it was a cool night, with that mysterious excitement in it, which comes at the two changes of the year. The quiet lights in the houses were humming out into the darkness, and there was a stir and bustle among the stars. Out of the corner of his eye Gatsby saw that the blocks of the sidewalks really formed the ladder and mounted to a secret place above the trees. He could climb to it if he climbed alone, and once there he could suck on the pap of life, gulp down the incomparable milk of wonder. His heart beat faster as Daisy's white face came up to his own. He knew that when he kissed this girl, and forever wed his unutterable visions to her perishable breath, his mind would never romp again like the mind of God. So he waited, listening for a moment, longer to the tuning fork that had been struck upon a star. Then he kissed her. At his lips touched she blossomed for him like a flower, and the incarnation was complete. Through all he said, even through his appalling sentimentality, I was reminded of something. An elusive rhythm, a fragment of lost words that I had heard somewhere a long time ago. 
For a moment a phrase tried to take shape in my mouth and my lips parted like a dumb man's, as though there was more struggling upon them than a wisp of startled air. But they made no sound, and what I had almost remembered was uncommunicable forever. 7. It was when curiosity about Gatsby was at its highest that the lights in his house failed to go on one Saturday night. And, as obscurely as it had begun, his career as Tremalchia was over. Only gradually did I become aware that the automobiles which turned expectantly into his drive stayed for just a minute, and then drove sulkily away. Wondering if he were sick I went over to find out. An unfamiliar butler with a villainous face squinted at me suspiciously from the door. Is Mr. Gatsby sick? Nope. After a pause he added, sir, in a dilatory, grudging way. I hadn't seen him around, and I was rather worried. Tell him Mr. Carraway came over. Who? he demanded rudely. Carraway. Carraway, all right, I'll tell him. Abruptly he slammed the door. My Finn informed me that Gatsby had dismissed every servant in his house a week ago and replaced them with half a dozen others who never went into West Egg Village to be bribed by the tradesmen, but ordered moderate supplies over the telephone. The grocery boy reported that the kitchen looked like a pigsty, and the general opinion in the village was that the new people weren't servants at all. Next day, Gatsby called me on the phone. Going away? I inquired. No, old sport. I hear you fired all your servants. I wanted somebody who wouldn't gossip. Daisy comes over quite often. In the afternoons. So the whole caravansary had fallen in like a card house at the disapproval in her eyes. There's some people Walsham wanted to do something for. They're all brothers and sisters. They used to run a small hotel. I see. He was calling up at Daisy's request. Would I come to lunch at her house tomorrow? Miss Baker would be there. Half an hour later, Daisy herself telephoned and seemed relieved to find that I was coming. Something was up. And yet, I couldn't believe that they would choose this occasion for a scene. Especially for the rather harrowing scene that Gatsby had outlined in the garden. The next day was broiling, almost the last, certainly the warmest, of the summer. As my train emerged from the tunnel into sunlight, only the hot whistles of the National Biscuit Company broke the simmering hush at noon. The straw seats of the car hovered on the edge of combustion. The woman next to me perspired delicately for a while into her white shirtwaist, and then, as her newspaper dampened under her fingers, lapsed despairingly into deep heat with a desolate cry. Her pocketbook slapped to the floor. Oh my, she gasped. I picked it up with a weary bend and handed it back to her, holding it at arm's length, and by the extreme tip of the corners to indicate that I had no designs upon it. But everyone nearby, including the woman, suspected me just the same. Hot, said the conductor to familiar faces. Some weather, hot, 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 is it hot enough for you, is it hot, is it? My commutation ticket came back to me with a dark stain from his hand. That anyone should care in this heat, whose flushed lips he kissed, whose head made damp the pajama pocket over his heart. Through the hall of the Buchanan's house blew a faint wind, carrying the sound of the telephone bell out to Gatsby and me as we waited at the door. The master's body roared the butler into the mouthpiece. I'm sorry, madam, but we can't furnish it. It's far too hot to touch this noon. 
What he really said was. Yeah. Yes. I'll see. He set down the receiver and came toward us, glistening slightly, to take our stiff straw hats. Madam expects you in the salon, he cried, needlessly indicating the direction. In this heat every extra gesture was an affront to the common store of life. The room, shadowed well with awnings, was dark and cool. Daisy and Jordan lay upon an enormous couch, like silver idols weighing down their own white dresses against the singing breeze of the fans. We can't move, they said together. Jordan's fingers, powdered white over their tan, rested for a moment in mine. And Mr. Thomas Buchanan, the athlete? I inquired. Simultaneously, I heard his voice, gruff, muffled, husky, at the hall telephone. Gatsby stood in the center of the crimson carpet and gazed around with fascinated eyes. Daisy watched him and laughed, her sweet, exciting laugh. A tiny gust of powder rose from her bosom into the air. The rumor is, whispered Jordan, that that's Tom's girl on the telephone. We were silent. The voice in the hall rose high with annoyance. Very well then, I won't sell you the car at all. I'm under no obligations to you at all, and as for your bothering me about it at lunchtime, I won't stand that at all. Holding down the receiver, said Daisy cynically. No, he's not, I assured her. It's a bona fide deal, I happen to know about it. Tom flung open the door, blocked out its space for a moment with his thick body, and hurried into the room. Mr. Gatsby? He put out his broad, flat hand with well-concealed dislike. I'm glad to see you, sir, Nick. Make us a cold drink, cried Daisy. As he left the room again, she got up and went over to Gatsby and pulled his face down, kissing him on the mouth. You know I love you, she murmured. You forget there's a lady present, said Jordan. Daisy looked around doubtfully. You kiss Nick, too. What a low, vulgar girl. I don't care, cried Daisy, and began to clob on the brick fireplace. Then she remembered the heat and sat down guiltily on the couch, just as a freshly laundered nurse leading a little girl came into the room. Blaise said, precious, she crooned, holding out her arms. Come to your own mother that loves you. The child, relinquished by the nurse, rushed across the room and rooted shyly into her mother's dress. The Blaise said, precious, did mother get powder on your old yellowy hair? Stand up now and say, How to do? Gatsby and I in turn leaned down and took the small reluctant hand. Afterward he kept looking at the child with surprise. I don't think he had ever really believed in its existence before. I got dressed before luncheon, said the child, turning eagerly to Daisy. That's because your mother wanted to show you off. Her face bent into the single wrinkle of the small white neck. You dream, you, you absolute little dream. Yes, admitted the child calmly. And Jordan's got on a white dress too. How do you like mother's friends? Daisy turned her around so that she faced Gatsby. Do you think they're pretty? Where's daddy? She doesn't look like her father, explained Daisy. She looks like me, she's got my hair and shape of the face. Daisy sat back upon the couch. The nurse took a step forward and held out her hand. Company. Goodbye, sweetheart. 
With a reluctant backward glance, the well-disciplined child held to her nurse's hand and was pulled out the door, just as Tom came back, preceding four gin rickies that clicked full of ice. Gatsby took up his drink. They certainly look cool, he said, with visible tension. We drank in long, greedy swallows. I read somewhere that the sun's getting hotter every year, said Tom genially. It seems that pretty soon the air's gonna fall into the sun, or, wait a minute, it's just the opposite. The sun's getting colder every year. Come outside, he suggested to Gatsby. I'd like you to have a look at the place. I went with them out to the veranda. On the green sound, stagnant in the heat, one small sail crawled slowly toward the fresher sea. Gatsby's eyes followed it momentarily. He raised his hand and pointed across the bay. I'm right across from you. So you are. Our eyes lifted over the rose beds and the hot lawn and the weedy refuse of the dog days along shore. Slowly the white wings of the boat moved against the blue cool limit of the sky. Ahead lay the scalloped ocean and the abounding blessed isles. There's spore for you, said Tom nodding. I'd like to be out there with him for about an hour. We had luncheon in the dining room, darkened too against the heat, and drank down nervous gaiety with the cold ale. What'll we do with ourselves this afternoon, cried Daisy, and a day after that, and the next thirty years? Don't be morbid, Jordan said. Life starts all over again when it gets crisp in the fall. But it's so hot, insisted Daisy on the verge of tears, and everything's so confused, let's all go to town. Her voice struggled on through the heat, beating against it, molding its senselessness into forms. I've heard of making a garage out of a stable, Tom was saying to Gatsby, but I'm the first man who ever made a stable out of a garage. Who wants to go to town, demanded Daisy insistently. Gatsby's eyes floated toward her. Ah, she cried, you look so cool. Their eyes met, and they stared together at each other, alone in space. With an effort, she glanced down at the table. You always look so cool, she repeated. She had told him that she loved him, and Tom Buchanan saw. He was astounded. His mouth opened a little, and he looked at Gatsby, and then back at Daisy, as if he had just recognized her as someone he knew a long time ago. You resemble the advertisement of the man, she went on innocently. You know the advertisement of the man. All right, broke in Tom quickly, I'm perfectly willing to go to town. Come on. We're all going to town. He got up, his eyes still flashing between Gatsby and his wife. No one moved. Come on. His temper cracked a little. What's the matter anyhow if we're going to town, let's start. His hand... Trembling with his effort at self-control, bore to his lips the last of his glass of ale. Daisy's voice got us to our feet and out onto the blazing gravel drive. Are we just going to go? She objected. Like this, are we gonna let anyone smoke a cigarette first? Everybody smoked all through lunch. Oh, let's have fun, she begged him. It's too hot to fuss. He didn't answer. Have it your own way, she said. Come on, Jordan. They went upstairs to get ready while we three men stood there shuffling the hot pebbles with our feet. A silver curve of the moon hovered already in the western sky. Gatsby started to speak, changed his mind, but not before Tom wheeled and faced him expectantly. Had you got your stables here? 
asked Gatsby with an effort. About a quarter of a mile down the road. Oh. A pause. I don't see the idea of going to town, broke out Tom savagely. Women get these notions in their heads. Shall we take anything to drink, called Daisy from an upper window. I'll get some whiskey, answered Tom. He went inside. Gatsby turned to me rigidly. I can't say anything in his house, old sport. She's got an indiscreet voice, I remarked. It's full of... I hesitated. Her voice is full of money, he said subtly. That was it. I'd never understood before. It was full of money. That was the inexhaustible charm that rose and fell in it, the jingle of it, the symbol's song of it. High in a white palace, the king's daughter, the golden girl. Tom came out of the house wrapping a quart bottle in a towel, followed by Daisy and Jordan wearing small tight hats of metallic cloth and carrying light capes over their arms. Shall we all go in my car, suggested Getsby. He felt the hot, green leather of the seat. I ought to have left it in the shade. Is it standard shift, demanded Tom. Yes. Well, you take my coupe and let me drive your car to town. The suggestion was distasteful to Gatsby. I don't think there's much gas, he objected. Plenty of gas, said Tom boisterously. He looked at the gauge. And if it runs out, I can stop at a drugstore. You can buy anything at a drugstore nowadays. A pause followed this apparently pointless remark. Daisy looked at Tom frowning, and an indefinable expression, at once definitely unfamiliar and vaguely recognizable, as if I had only heard it described in words, passed over Gatsby's face. Come on, Daisy, said Tom, pressing her with his hand toward Gatsby's car. I'll take you in this circus wagon. He opened the door, but she moved out from the circle of his arm. You take Nick and Jordan, we'll follow you in the coop. She walked close to Gatsby, touching his coat with her hand. Jordan and Tom and I got into the front seat of Gatsby's car, Tom pushed the unfamiliar gears tentatively, and we shot off into the oppressive heat, leaving them out of sight behind. Did you see that? demanded Tom. See what? He looked at me keenly, realizing that Jordan and I must have known all along. You think I'm pretty dumb, don't you? he suggested. Perhaps I am, but I have a... Almost a second sight, sometimes, that tells me what to do. Maybe you don't believe that, but science. He paused. The immediate contingency overtook him, pulled him back from the edge of theoretical abyss. I've made a small investigation of this fellow, he continued. I could have gone deeper if I'd known. Do you mean you've been to a medium? inquired Jordan humorously. What? Confused. He stared at us as we laughed. A medium? About Gatsby. About Gatsby, no, I haven't. I said I'd been making a small investigation of his past. And you found he was an Oxford man, said Jordan helpfully. An Oxford man? He was incredulous. Like hell he is, he wears a pink suit. Nevertheless, he's an Oxford man. Oxford, New Mexico, snorted Tom contemptuously, or something like that. Listen, Tom, if you're such a snob, why did you invite him to lunch? demanded Jordan crossly. Daisy invited him. She knew him before we were married. God knows where. We were all irritable now with the fading ill, 
and aware of it we drove for a while in silence. Then, as Dr. T.J. Eckelberg's faded eyes came into sight down the road, I remembered Gatsby's caution about gasoline. We've got enough to get us to town, said Tom. But there's a garage right here, objected Jordan. I don't want to get stalled in this baking heat. Tom threw on both brakes impatiently, and we slid to an abrupt dusty stop under Wilson's sign. After a moment, the proprietor emerged from the interior of his establishment and gazed hollow-eyed at the car. Let's have some gas, cried Tom roughly. What do you think we stop for? To admire the view. I'm sick, said Wilson without moving. Been sick all day. What's the matter? I'm all run down. Well, shall I help myself? Tom demanded. You sounded well enough on the phone. With an effort, Wilson left the shade and support of the doorway, and, breathing hard, unscrewed the cap of the tank. In the sunlight, his face was green. I didn't mean to interrupt your lunch, he said. But I need money pretty bad, and I was wondering what you were going to do with your old car. How do you like this one? inquired Tom. I bought it last week. It's a nice yellow one, said Wilson, as he strained at the handle. Like to buy it. Big chance, Wilson smiled faintly. No, but I could make some money on the other. What do you want money for, all of a sudden? I've been here too long. I want to get away my wife and I want to go west. Your wife does, exclaimed Tom, startled. She's been talking about it for ten years. He rested for a moment against the pump, shading his eyes. And now she's going whether she wants to or not, I'm going to get her away. The coupe flashed by us with a flurry of dust and a flash of a waving hand. What do I owe you? demanded Tom harshly. I just got wised up to something funny the last two days, remarked Wilson. That's why I want to get away, that's why I've been bothering you about the car. What do I owe you? Dollar twenty. The relentless beating heat was beginning to confuse me and I had a bad moment there before I realized that so far his suspicions hadn't alighted on Tom. He had discovered that Myrtle had some sort of life apart from him in another world, and the shock had made him physically sick. I stared at him and then at Tom, who had made a parallel discovery less than an hour before. And it occurred to me that there was no difference between men, in intelligence or race, so profound is the difference between the sick and the well. Wilson was so sick that he looked guilty, unforgivably guilty. As if he had just got some poor girl with child. I'll let you have that car, said Tom. I'll send it over tomorrow afternoon. That locality was always vaguely disquieting, even in the broad glare of afternoon, and now I turned my head as though I had been warned of something behind. Over the ash heaps the giant eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg kept their vigil, but I perceived after a moment that other eyes were regarding us with peculiar intensity from less than twenty feet away. In one of the windows over the garage the curtains had been moved aside a little, and Myrtle Wilson was peering down at the car. So engrossed was she that she had no consciousness of being observed, and one emotion after another crept into her face like objects into a slowly developing picture. Her expression was curiously familiar. It was an expression I had often seen on women's faces, but on Myrtle Wilson's face it seemed purposeless and inexplicable until I realized that her eyes, wide with jealous terror, were fixed not on Tom, but on Jordan Baker, whom she took to be his wife. 
there is no confusion like the confusion of a simple mind, and as we drove away Tom was feeling the hot whips of panic. His wife and his mistress, until an hour ago secure and inviolate, were slipping precipitately from his control. Instinct made him step on the accelerator with the double purpose of overtaking Daisy and leaving Wilson behind, and we sped along toward Astoria at fifty miles an hour, until, among the spidery girders of the elevated, we came in sight of the easy-going blue coupe. Those big movies around 50th Street are cool, suggested Jordan. I love New York on summer afternoons when everyone's away. There's something very sensuous about it. Overripe, as if all sorts of funny fruits were going to fall into your hands. The word, sensuous had the effect of further disquieting Tom, but before he could invent a protest the coupe came to a stop, and Daisy signaled us to draw up alongside. Where are we going? she cried. How about the movies? It's so hot, she complained. Eagle will ride around and meet you after. With an effort, her wit rose faintly. We'll meet you on some corner. I'll be the man smoking two cigarettes. We can't argue about it here, Tom said impatiently, as a truck gave out a cursing whistle behind us. You follow me to the south side of Central Park in front of the plaza. Several times he turned his head and looked back for their car, and if the traffic delayed them he slowed up until they came into sight. I think he was afraid they would dart down a side street and out of his life forever. But they didn't. And we all took the less explicable step of engaging the parlor of a suite in the Plaza Hotel. The prolonged and tumultuous argument that ended by hurting us into that room eludes me, though I have a sharp physical memory that, in the course of it, my underwear kept climbing like a damp snake around my legs and intermittent beads of sweat raced cool across my back. The notion originated with Daisy's suggestion that we hire five bathrooms and take cold baths, and then assume more tangible form as a place to have a mint julep. Each of us said over and over that it was a crazy idea. We all talked at once to a baffled clerk and thought or pretended to think that we were being very funny. The room was large and stifling, and, though it was already four o'clock, opening the windows admitted only a gust of hot shrubbery from the park. Daisy went to the mirror and stood with her back to us, fixing her hair. It's a swell suite, whispered Jordan respectfully, and everyone laughed. Open another window, commanded Daisy without turning around. There aren't any more. Well, we'd better telephone for an axe. The thing to do is to forget about the heat, said Tom impatiently. You make it ten times worse by crabbing about it. He unrolled the bottle of whiskey from the towel and put it on the table. Why not let her alone, old sport, remarked Gatsby. You're the one that wanted to come to town. There was a moment of silence. The telephone book slipped from its nail and splashed to the floor, whereupon Jordan whispered, Excuse me. But this time, no one laughed. I'll pick it up, I offered. I've got it. Gatsby examined the parted string, muttered hum in an interested way, and tossed the book on a chair. That's a great expression of yours, isn't it? said Tom sharply. What is? All this old sport business. Where'd you pick that up? I'll see here, Tom, said Daisy, turning around from the mirror. If you're gonna make personal remarks, I won't stay here a minute. Call up and order some ice for the minjula. As Tom took up the receiver, the compressed heat exploded into sound 
and we were listening to the portentous chords of Mendelssohn's wedding march from the ballroom below. Imagine marrying anybody in this heat, cried Jordan dismally. Still, I was married in the middle of June, Daisy remembered. Louisville in June, somebody fainted. Who was it fainted, Tom? Biloxi, he answered shortly. A man named Biloxi, blocks Biloxi, and he made boxes, that's a fact, and he was from Biloxi, Tennessee. They carried him into my house, upended Jordan, because we lived just two doors from the church, and he stayed three weeks until Betty told him he had to get out the day after he left Daddy died. After a moment, she added, there wasn't any connection. I used to know a Bill Biloxi from Memphis, I remarked. That was his cousin. I knew his whole family history before he left. He gave me an aluminum putter that I use today. The music had died down as the ceremony began, and now a long cheer floated in at the window, followed by intermittent cries of why yay yay yay, and finally by a burst of jazz as the dancing began. We're getting old, said Daisy. If we were young, we'd rise and dance. Remember by Loxy, Jordan warned her. Where do you know him, Tom? By Loxy. He concentrated with an effort. I didn't know him. He was a friend of Daisy's. He was not, she denied. I'd never seen him before he came down in the private car. Well, he said he knew you. He said he was raised in Louisville. A sub bird brought him around at the last minute and asked if we had room for him. Jordan smiled. He was probably bumming his way home. He told me he was president of your class at Yale. Tom and I looked at each other blankly. By Loxy? First place, we didn't have any president. Gatsby's foot beat a short, restless tattoo, and Tom eyed him suddenly. By the way, Mr. Gatsby, I understand you're an Oxford man. Not exactly. Oh, yes, I understand you went to Oxford. Yes, I went there. A pause. Then Tom's voice, incredulous and insulting. You must have gone there about the time Biloxi went to New Haven. Another pause. A waiter knocked and came in with crushed mint and ice, but the silence was unbroken by his, thank you, and the soft closing of the door. This tremendous detail was to be cleared up at last. I told you I went there, said Gatsby. I heard you, but I'd like to know when. It was in 1919, I only stayed five months. That's why I can't really call myself an Oxford man. Tom glanced around to see if we mirrored his unbelief. But we were all looking at Gatsby. It was an opportunity they gave to some of the officers after the armistice, he continued. We could go to any of the universities in England or France. I wanted to get up and slap him on the back. I had one of those renewals of complete faith in him that I'd experienced before. Daisy rose, smiling faintly, and went to the table. Open the whiskey, Tom, she ordered, and I'll make you a mint julep, then you won't seem so stupid to yourself. Look at the mint! Wait a minute, snapped Tom. I want to ask Mr. Gatsby one more question. Go on, Gatsby said politely. What kind of a row are you trying to cause in my house anyhow? They were out in the open at last, and Gatsby was content. He isn't causing a row, Daisy looked desperately from one to the other. You're causing a row, please have a little self-control. Self-control, repeated Tom incredulously. I suppose the latest thing is to sit back and let Mr. Nobody from Nowhere make love to your wife, well, 
if that's the idea you can count me out. Nowadays people begin by sneering at family life and family institutions, and next they'll throw everything overboard and have intermarriage between black and white. Flushed with his impassioned gibberish, he saw himself standing alone on the last barrier of civilization. We're all white here, murmured Jordan. I know I'm not very popular. I don't give big parties. I suppose you've got to make your house into a pigsty in order to have any friends. In the modern world. Angry as I was, as we all were, I was tempted to laugh whenever he opened his mouth. The transition from Libertine to Prig was so complete. I've got something to tell you, old sport. Began Gatsby. But Daisy guessed at his intention. Please don't, she interrupted helplessly. Please let's all go home, why don't we all go home? That's a good idea, I got up. Come on, Tom, nobody wants a drink. I want to know what Mr. Gatsby has to tell me. Your wife doesn't love you, said Gatsby. She's never loved you, she loves me. You must be crazy, exclaimed Tom automatically. Gatsby sprang to his feet, vivid with excitement. She never loved you, do you hear, he cried. She only married you because I was poor, and she was tired of waiting for me. It was a terrible mistake, but in her heart she never loved anyone except me. At this point Jordan and I tried to go, but Tom and Gatsby insisted with competitive firmness that we remain. As though neither of them had anything to conceal, and it would be a privilege to partake vicariously of their emotions. Sit down, Daisy, Tom's voice groped unsuccessfully for the paternal note. What's been going on? I want to hear all about it. I told you what's been going on, said Gatsby. Going on for five years. And you didn't know. Tom turned to Daisy sharply. You've been seeing this fellow for five years? Not seeing, said Gatsby. No, we couldn't meet, but both of us loved each other all that time, old sport, and you didn't know. I used to laugh sometimes, but there was no laughter in his eyes, to think that you didn't know. Oh. That's all. Tom tapped his thick fingers together like a clergyman and leaned back in his chair. You're crazy, he exploded. I can't speak about what happened five years ago because I didn't know Daisy then. And I'll be damned if I see how you got within a mile of her, unless you brought the groceries to the back door. But all the rest of that's a goddamned lie. Daisy loved me when she married me, and she loves me now. No said Gatsby, shaking his head. She does, though. The trouble is that sometimes she gets foolish ideas in her head and doesn't know what she's doing. He nodded sagely. And what's more, I love Daisy, too. Once in a while I go off on a spree and make a fool of myself, but I always come back, and in my heart I love her all the time. You're revolting, said Daisy. She turned to me, and her voice, dropping an octave lower, filled the room with thrilling scorn. Do you know why we left Chicago? I'm surprised that they didn't treat you to the story of that little spree. Gatsby walked over and stood beside her. Daisy, that's all over now, he said earnestly. It doesn't matter anymore, just tell him the truth, that you never loved him, and it's all wiped out forever. She looked at him blindly. Why, how could I love him, possibly? You never loved him. She hesitated. Her eyes fell on Jordan and me with a sort of appeal, 
as though she realized at last what she was doing. And as though she had never, all along, intended doing anything at all. But it was done now. It was too late. I never loved him, she said, with perceptible reluctance. Not a Capulani, demanded Tom suddenly. No. From the ballroom beneath, muffled and suffocating chords were drifting up on hot waves of air. Not that day I carried you down from the punch bowl to keep your shoes dry. There was a husky tenderness in his tone. Daisy? Please don't. Her voice was cold, but the rancor was gone from it. She looked at Gatsby. There, Jay, she said. But her hand as she tried to light a cigarette was trembling. Suddenly she threw the cigarette and the burning match on the carpet. Oh, you want too much, she cried to Gatsby. I love you now. Isn't that enough? I can't help what's past. She began to sob helplessly. I did love him once. But I loved you too. Gatsby's eyes opened and closed. You love me too, he repeated. Even that's a lie, said Tom savagely. She didn't know you were alive. Why? There's things between Daisy and me that you'll never know, things that neither of us can ever forget. The words seemed to bite physically into Gatsby. I want to speak to Daisy alone, he insisted. She's all excited now. Even alone I can't say I never loved Tom, she admitted in a pitiful voice. It wouldn't be true. Of course it wouldn't, agreed Tom. She turned to her husband. As if it mattered to you, she said. Of course it matters, I'm going to take better care of you from now on. You don't understand, said Gatsby with a touch of panic. You're not going to take care of her anymore. I'm not. Tom opened his eyes wide and laughed. He could afford to control himself now. Why's that? Daisy's leaving you. Nonsense. I am, though, she said with a visible effort. She's not leaving me? Tom's words suddenly leaned down over Gatsby. Certainly not for a common swindler who'd have to steal the ring he put on her finger. I won't stand this, cried Daisy. Oh, please, let's get out. Who are you, anyhow, broke out Tom. You're one of that bunch that hangs around with Mayor Wolfsham, that much I happen to know. I've made a little investigation into your affairs, and I'll carry it further tomorrow. You can sue yourself about that, old sport, said Gatsby steadily. I found out what your drug stores were. He turned to us and spoke rapidly. He and this Wolfsham bought up a lot of side street drug stores here and in Chicago and sold grain alcohol over the counter. That's one of his little stunts. I picked him for a bootlegger the first time I saw him, and I wasn't far wrong. What about it? said Gatsby politely. I guess your friend Walter Chase wasn't too proud to come in on it. And you left him in the lurch, didn't you? You let him go to jail for a month over in New Jersey. God, you ought to hear Walter on the subject of you. He came to us dead broke. He was very glad to pick up some money, old sport. Don't you call me old sport, cried Tom. Gatsby said nothing. Walter could have you up on the betting laws too, but Wolfsham scared him into shutting his mouth. That unfamiliar yet recognizable look was back again in Gatsby's face. A drugstore business was just small change, continued Tom slowly, but you've got something on now that Walter's afraid to tell me about. 
I glanced at Daisy, who was staring terrified between Gatsby and her husband, and at Jordan, who had begun to balance an invisible but absorbing object on the tip of her chin. Then I turned back to Gatsby and was startled at his expression. He looked, and this is said in all contempt for the babbled slander of his garden, as if he had killed a man. For a moment the set of his face could be described in just that fantastic way. It passed, and he began to talk excitedly to Daisy, denying everything, defending his name against accusations that had not been made. But with every word she was drawing further and further into herself, so he gave that up, and only the dead dream fought on as the afternoon slipped away, trying to touch what was no longer tangible, struggling unhappily, undespairingly, toward that lost voice across the room. The voice begged again to go. Please, Tom, I can't stand this anymore. Her frightened eyes told that whatever intentions, whatever courage she had had, were definitely gone. You two start on home, Daisy, said Tom. In Mr. Gatsby's car. She looked at Tom, alarmed now, but he insisted with magnanimous scorn. Go on, he won't annoy you, I think he realizes that his presumptuous little flirtation is over. They were gone, without a word, snapped out, made accidental, isolated, like ghosts, even from our pity. After a moment Tom got up and began wrapping the unopened bottle of whiskey in the towel. Want any of this stuff, Jordan? Nick? I didn't answer. Nick? He asked again. What? Want any? No, I just remembered that today's my birthday. I was thirty. Before me stretched the portentous, menacing road of a new decade. It was seven o'clock when we got into the coop with him and started for Long Island. Tom talked incessantly, exulting and laughing, but his voice was as remote from Jordan and me as the foreign clamor on the sidewalk or the tumult of the elevated overhead. Human sympathy has its limits, and we were content to let all their tragic arguments fade with the city lights behind. 30. The promise of a decade of loneliness, a thinning list of single men to know, a thinning briefcase of enthusiasm, thinning hair. But there was Jordan beside me, who, unlike Daisy, was too wise ever to carry well-forgotten dreams from age to age. As we passed over the dark bridge her wan face fell lazily against my coat's shoulder, and the formidable stroke of thirty died away with the reassuring pressure of her hand. So we drove on toward death through the cooling twilight. The young Greek, Michaelis, who ran the coffee joint beside the ash heaps, was the principal witness at the inquest. He had slept through the heat until after five, when he strolled over to the garage and found George Wilson sick in his office. Really sick, pale as his own pale hair and shaking all over. Michaelis advised him to go to bed, but Wilson refused, saying that he'd miss a lot of business if he did. While his neighbor was trying to persuade him, a violent racket broke out overhead. I've got my wife locked in up there, explained Wilson calmly. She's going to stay there till the day after tomorrow, and then we're going to move away. Michaelis was astonished. They'd been neighbors for four years, and Wilson had never seemed faintly capable of such a statement. Generally, he was one of these worn-out men. When he wasn't working, he sat on a chair in the doorway and stared at the people in the cars that passed along the road. When anyone spoke to him, he invariably laughed in an agreeable, colorless way. He was his wife's man and not his own. So naturally, Michaelis tried to find out what had happened, but Wilson wouldn't say a word. 
Instead, he began to throw curious, suspicious glances at his visitor and ask him what he'd been doing at certain times on certain days. Just as the latter was getting uneasy, some workmen came past the door bound for his restaurant, and Michaelis took the opportunity to get away, intending to come back later. But he didn't. He supposed he forgot to, that's all. When he came outside again, a little after seven, he was reminded of the conversation because he heard Mrs. Wilson's voice, loud and scolding, downstairs in the garage. Beat me, he heard her cry. Throw me down and beat me, you dirty little coward. A moment later, she rushed out into the dusk, waving her hands and shouting. Before he could move from his door, the business was over. The death car, as the newspapers called it, didn't stop. It came out of the gathering darkness, wavered tragically for a moment, and then disappeared around the next bend. Mavro Michaelis wasn't even sure of its color. He told the first policeman that it was light green. The other car, the one going toward New York, came to rest a hundred yards beyond, and its driver hurried back to where Myrtle Wilson, her life violently extinguished, knelt in the road and mingled her thick dark blood with the dust. Michaelis and this man reached her first, but when they had torn open her shirtwaist, still damp with perspiration, they saw that her left breast was swinging loose like a flap, and there was no need to listen for the heart beneath. The mouth was wide open and ripped a little at the corners, as though she had choked a little in giving up the tremendous vitality she had stored so long. We saw the three or four automobiles in the crowd when we were still some distance away. Rack, said Tom. That's good, Wilson'll have a little business at last. He slowed down, but still without any intention of stopping, until, as we came nearer, the hushed, intent faces of the people at the garage door made him automatically put on the brakes. We'll take a look, he said doubtfully, just a look. I became aware now of a hollow, wailing sound which issued incessantly from the garage, a sound which as we got out of the coupe and walked toward the door, resolved itself into the words, oh, my God, uttered over and over in a gasping moan. There's some bad trouble here, said Tom excitedly. He reached up on tiptoes and peered over a circle of heads into the garage, which was lit only by a yellow light in a swinging metal basket overhead.